You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by Mike Carlin's novel, Uncorking a Murder. Buy it in paperback or ebook versions wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today, I'm very excited to share with you my conversation with David Bell, author of the new thriller, Layover, which hits the shelves on July 2nd. But before we get into that, I wanted to remind you all, or actually tell some of you who don't know, that's probably most of you come to think of it, that I'm going to be performing stand-up comedy at Dangerfields in New York City on July 18th at 8 p.m. And yes, when you hear the name Dangerfields, it's that Dangerfields, the one that was uh, run by Rodney Dangerfield and certainly named after him. Uh, I could attempt to do a Rodney Dangerfield impersonation, but uh, it won't work because I'm not really good at impersonations unless... I'm impersonating my dad, then I'm really good. But uh, you have no idea who my dad is, so that's not going to help us at all in this conversation now, is it? I'm actually slightly freaking out about this date because uh, I've been doing you know, stand-up around Connecticut um, for a while, and uh, this is the first time I'm venturing into New York, so I'm just uh, kind of saying a little prayer to myself that it's going to go well. I mean, I, I do trust the material. Uh, it is funny. I have proven that it's funny by running focus groups on it. Uh, just kidding. I did not do focus groups on the comedy. Um, but I have performed it, uh, at a few showcases and open mics around the area. So I know it's going to be good. I just have to convince myself, um, to believe that if that makes any sense. <laughs> I also wanted to give you all an update on my new novel, Slippery People. It is in the hands of an editor right now who is going through it making sure the story, uh, makes sense. So he's doing what is called a content edit. He's going through it, making sure that, uh, you know, everything is consistent throughout and plot lines are solid and I didn't leave uh, anything hanging. You know, I'm obeying the rule of Chekhov's gun and all that. And if you don't know what Chekhov's gun is, it's got nothing to do with Star Trek. Um, but uh, Google it and, and learn something. Um, I'm not going to teach you here because I'm not a great teacher. Anyway, hopefully I'm going to have that back from him, uh, the content stuff back from him soon, and uh, I'll get cracking for the uh, remainder of the summer on making some revisions and then sending it back out to another editor for a line edit, blah, 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 blah. And uh, all this is to say that it should be in shape to pitch to agents, hopefully uh, by the early fall. And I know some of you have been reaching out to me on the Twitter uh, to get an advanced reader copy. I'm happy to do that, but it's, it's just not ready yet. Not ready yet, but it will be soon. I promise. I promise it's going to be ready soon and then you'll have it. Okay. Um, but you know, reach out to me on Twitter if you want to and, and keep bugging me. I won't forget you, but I always like to hear from you. It lets me know that you're there. Uh, anyway, so enough about me. I know you're really here to listen to David Bell's story. So I'm not going to hold that up any longer. Um, so, uh, here is my conversation with a true master of the thriller genre. Mr. David Bell, his new book, Layover, is going to be out on July 2nd. I highly recommend it. It's a good read. You're going to like it. And here we go. 
David Bell. So where, where are you right now? It looks like you're in a home office or? Yeah, I'm at my desk in my house. Um, this is supposed to be our living room, uh, but I use it as my office. And I have this giant desk that is supposed used to be our dining room table. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just in the front of the house. There's a You can't see it, of course, but there's a nice window that shows the sunny sunny Kentucky day outside the house here. And I'm watching all the joggers and people go by while I sit inside in the air conditioning. There you go. So now are, yeah. you, are you jealous at all of those joggers going by or are you laughing at them as they run across your window? I am not jealous. I went out, I, I walk and run a little bit every morning. So I already did that because you, it, it's just, it's too hot to do it at a certain point. So I went out early before it got insanely hot um, so, so now I'm going to be safe inside for, for a while. Safe, safe being the key word. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I made the mistake of, uh, I don't want to say mistake. I had to drop my car off, um, this morning to get serviced. And the guy told me it was going to be, I'd uh, probably till after lunch until I got it back. So I'm like, you know what? I, I could call an Uber to get home. I was planning on waiting for it. I, I could call an Uber to get home or I could try and run home. Now, I live about seven miles away from where I was dropping the car off, and I'm like, you know, I, I could probably do it. I got about six miles in, and, I mean, I personally ran out of gas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, had to, I had to call my daughter. I'm like, <clears throat> can, can you pick me up by any chance? Because I'm, I, can't, I can't literally go any further right now. That's too far. That's too far for me, and especially if it's hot. I would not have tried that, but. But you get you deserve credit for making it as far as you made it. Well, there you go. I mean, I'm, I'll take and the effort. I'll take your credit, David. Yeah, I will, yeah. I will take the credit that David Bell has given me this morning. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> well, How old is your daughter? Did was this was there any like I laugh at you, Dad, for trying to do this? Or well, was it... um, she's four, but I've taught her how to drive, oh, so it's fine. No, no, she's uh, we actually have you to could be... make some Uber could be her side hustle. <laughs> we have uh, we have triplets. They're 17 years old. Oh wow. So she's uh she's a licensed driver and it was all on the up and up. So Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Um well I know you have a, a new book coming out called Layover, but before we before we talk about it, I just want to talk about kind of you first and just understanding kind of where you know, where you're from and, and kind of what, what prompted you to, to think <laughs> about writing as as a career. But why don't we start from from the beginning? Where where's David Bell from? Well, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, and specifically, if you're from Cincinnati, you have to point out whether you're from the west side of Cincinnati or the east side of Cincinnati, and I am from the west side of Cincinnati, which is the more blue-collar, beer-drinking route for the Cincinnati Reds and Bengals, uh, Catholic side of the city as opposed to the east side of the city, which is the more effete, wealthy, privileged, uh, let's sip Chardonnay side of the city, right? <laughs> so, so I was from the west side of Cincinnati uh, in a large Catholic family. I mean, my, my immediate family was not overly large, but I mean, my, my extended family was massive. Yeah. And... Um, and so just a very Catholic West Side, lots of blue collar folks in the family, um, lots of sports, lots of church festivals, lots of beer drinking, 
um, starting in my infancy. No, I'm kidding. We didn't do that in my infancy, but, but, but so that, that's where I was from. And I went to Catholic schools in Cincinnati. Um, if you're Catholic and you go to a high school, most of the high schools are single gender high schools. Mm -hmm. So I went to an all boys Catholic high school, uh, a Jesuit high school. Um, and that's pretty much a typical experience if you grew up Catholic in Cincinnati. Yeah. And how was it growing up Catholic in Cincinnati? Was it something that you were kind of into and like interested in or was it thrust upon you? What was your take on that? Well, there's no doubt it was thrust upon me. I mean, nobody asked my opinion about it. Um, I think I was I was baptized like, you know, three weeks after I was born. So they didn't if they asked my opinion, I don't remember what I said. Right. Um and uh, and they're really, if you knew my mom, there's really no choice about being Catholic. That's kind of what you do. And this is going to sound incredibly naive and silly for an adult to say this at this point in, in my life and in our culture. But I really thought most people in the world were Catholic. <laughs> that when I went, I'm, I'm not kidding, when I went away to college, and I went away to college at Indiana University, which was just two hours away from Cincinnati. And my first roommate um, was not Catholic. And we talked about this. And very quickly, he said something about like, oh, Catholics, you just do whatever the Pope tells you to do and whatever. And I thought, first of all, I didn't know there were a lot of people who weren't Catholic in the world because most people weren't Catholic. And then I was like, and, and he has this notion that we just do whatever the Pope tells us because I didn't know any Catholics who were doing what the Pope told them right. to do, right, for the most part. So anyway, so so that was what it was like. I mean, I I, I, I hope my mom doesn't listen to this, uh, but I, I mean, I don't practice Catholicism anymore. I don't go to church anymore. Um, but I do feel like it shaped me in certain ways. I mean, um, people say, why do you write these weird books where people get murdered and kidnapped and there's all these weird things happening? And I say, well, I grew up in a church when I was in the second grade and I was making my first communion. I was gifted this book, The Lives of the Saints, and at the end of every little blurb about the saints, it ended with, and then he was decapitated in the year 90 AD, or, and then he was roasted over uh, hot coals in the year 45 AD. I mean, how do you not grow up with a morbid curiosity in death and violence if that's the church you grew up in right and yeah. and like you know when i was a kid i thought that was normal right i thought all churches did that but right. so that's what that's how it shaped me interesting so yeah we, we have a similar experience to that i did catholic school from kindergarten through high school and mm -hmm. then went to uh, went to the university of connecticut um that's my dad's alma mater oh is it really wow he grew up in dairy it's darian right yeah. is how you pronounce it yeah no it's it's darian that's oh, okay. How, that's I how know. you pronounce that town. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, but no, that's one actually one town over from me. That's one town over. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So, Great. but um, yeah, we. Uh, but but yeah. So I I, mean, I go I go to the University of Connecticut where there are lots of non Catholics, you know, and mm -hmm. it's um it, it it was one of those things where you don't realize how insular your life is when you grow up in that sort of you know K through twelve right. you know. Um, uh, model. I mean, I have nothing bad to say about it personally, but uh, it's funny. My my um my wife is not Catholic, and it was that was like a problem for my mom. 
Um, you know, you talk about your mom not listening to the show. Like the fact that I was married, you know, marrying an Episcopalian was uh, almost scandalous in in the Carlin household. You know, but I mean, they oh, have yeah. a very good relationship, and it, it's all fine now. But it was, you know, well, what church are you going to get married in, Michael? And and can Father Bob be there? And and all this stuff. So, I, no, this is no exaggeration. But every time. I got a girlfriend in my life. So like, especially when I went away to college and I would get a girlfriend and I would have to tell my parents, you know, Oh, I'm started dating someone. I'm not kidding. Pretty much. The first question my mom would ask is, is she Catholic? And what's even stranger is that even though I was away from home and I was in a place where most people weren't Catholic, I almost always seriously dated women and married a woman who grew up Catholic. And I I just, I don't know why that happened. It was just so in my brain that, that, or maybe I was just so worried about my mom's judgment that I just was like, let's just not, I'll just, I'll just meet a nice Catholic girl. We won't have that argument. I don't know. Fascinating. No, it, 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 it is, it is. And, um, you know, to to some extent it, it, uh, it's interesting. Like when we started raising our kids, um, it's, well, you're going to raise them Catholic or you're going to raise them Episcopal, you know, what do we, and, you know, if, if, if you don't have to have that, it's, that's a difficult conversation, right? I mean, that's one of those things where you, know, you don't talk about it before you get married and there could be some tension between the two families. And, you know, I think my, my parents' point was, hey, look, you know, if you marry a Catholic girl, you don't have to have that argument. But I'm like, yeah, but I'm not right. marrying for religion. I'm marrying for love. You know, it's, it's a, different, uh, a different thing. But, um, and, and the differences between the two churches are a minimal, not vast. It's minimal. not like, you know, yeah, I'm so... But it's funny. I remember. I remember as a kid going to a, fr- a friend of mine was. Um, what was he? Uh, um, what this place called a fish church because it was actually the architecture of the church was shaped like a fish Presbyterian. And I remember looking at my twin brother, my twin brother, looking at my twin brother, and I'm like, "Are we are we going to get in trouble for being here? You know, right. like it's like, yeah. a, did, are they going to know? It's like these like weird like neuroses you grow up with when right. when everything is very strict, but. When um when did you think about writing and when did you start to kind of think about you know the, well actually before we get into that what did you want to be when you were growing up so you're growing up in Catholic school in Cincinnati what what did a young David Bell want to do with his life when he was younger I mean the first thing I can remember wanting to do is I wanted to play for the Cincinnati Reds that was the first dream I had um which was you know pretty much dashed when I couldn't hit better than like 270 in the fourth grade. Right. And I like, that was going to be the end of it. I was good defensively, but like, I was not going to make it as a a player for the Cincinnati Reds. Although the Reds manager is now named David Bell and Mm. he's also from Cincinnati. So um, he makes much more money than I do. Um, But so, so that was the first dream, but, but really the whole time growing up, I, I read a lot. Uh, My parents read a lot. So there were always books in the house. There were always, this is back in the days when there were two newspapers in the city. There was a morning paper and an afternoon paper. My parents subscribed to both. So there were always newspapers, magazines, books. My dad went to the library all the time. So, so I was always reading. I was always fascinated by books. I was fascinated by the lives of writers. Um, and so there was this thought in the back of my mind that that could be something I could do for a living. But then at the same time, I was probably afraid to try to write um, because, you know, you when you start writing or you start playing a musical instrument or anything like that, you're terrible at it. 
and and it's embarrassing to be terrible at something that you want to do. So so I wasn't one of those people who was who was like writing novels when he was in high school or whatever. Um, but but definitely in the back of my brain, that dream was there to be a writer. Maybe this is something I could do someday. There was just the small detail that I was not actually writing anything. Minor detail. Yeah, except for that, I was set to go. So when when did when did the transition happen? Like when did you um, kind of give up on the the, the dream of playing baseball? Um, which, by the way, I have to say. I was very good at getting hit by baseballs uh, when I played little league, yeah. so that was my that was my tactic for getting on base. I had a very good on base percentage. Uh, it was mostly you were ahead of your time thinking of the on base percentage back. Yes, I was, and actually, since you're a Cincinnati Reds fan, I have to divert for a second, and because this story just popped into my head, I moved my wife and I and the kids moved to California for six months. Um, and, uh, we were living in a town outside of, uh, outside of LA called Agora Hills, which was beautiful, uh, renting a house owned by, hold on, wait for it. Nasty boy, Rob Dibble. Oh, wow. Yes. Yes. What was he like as a landlord? Isn't he from Connecticut? He is from Connecticut. His wife is from Connecticut. Um, they, they live I would in- hate to have him as a landlord. I hope he's not listening. Well, but I, ha- I yeah. <laughs> They were um, uh, his wife, uh, a pleasure to deal with. Okay. But I never dealt dealt with Rob at all, but uh, his his wife was a pleasure, and they had a lovely house that we lived in for six months. Um, okay, and they were very gracious in letting us out of our lease. We had a year lease with them, but we had to get back to the New York area. So we uh, okay. I mean, he might be a perfectly <laughs> lovely guy off the field. I'm just saying, on the field, he had some issues back in the day. Yeah, but I mean, I love him because issues. he was he was like the scariest most dominating relief pitcher in the universe, right. which is kind of what you want from a relief pitcher is to be scary. And oh, yeah. he definitely had that. Yeah. Well, he earned the nickname nasty boy, you know, yes. It, it, yes. so that's a, uh, so that's an uh, interesting aside since you're a, a fan of the reds. But um, when did you think that writing could be a career for you though, David, when, when did that kind of come into your, into your head? It, it's weird because, so I majored in English in college but not creative writing. I, I was majoring in literature. I don't even know if they had a creative writing major at IU when I was there. But so between my junior and senior year of college, I was home for the summer and I was working my summer job. And I, I, I remember this moment vividly that I was home in my bedroom, in my childhood bedroom. And I was thinking to myself that this moment just popped, it just popped into my head with this clarity I'm going back from my last year of college, and that means I have to do something when that year is over. Like that, like that's the end of the prescribed path in life is next year. Because for since you're five years old, you're in school, and then when you graduate from college, there's no set path anymore, right? So I remember that thought occurring to me. I remember being terrified by that thought and thinking, well, okay, maybe I could be a writer. Maybe that could be the profession that I pursue. And when I went back to school in the fall, I signed up for a creative writing class for a, I I think it was just an introduction to fiction class. And that was the first, well, I had taken a creative writing class in high school, but this one in college was, you know, the first time I was taking that class thinking I want to be a writer as a profession. So that was when I started trying 
to be serious about writing. And then I started writing more after college and it just kind of went from there. Okay. So what, what was the first gig after college? Well, I, I had this notion in my mind that if I wanted to be a writer, I needed to have time to write and I needed to have a job that um, would not take up too much of my mental energy so that I would be free to write. Um, along with that is the fact that I had no marketable skills. So that also was a contributing factor to this decision. But so I got out of college and, um, my, my then girlfriend, who is now my wife, um, got into graduate school at the Savannah College of Art and Design in Savannah, Georgia. And so she, we were, she was going to move there and I was just like, Hey, I don't have anything else to do. So my first job was working in a restaurant. Um, and I worked in a restaurant for a couple of years and, and, and in the back of my mind, I wanted to go back to graduate school to study creative writing, to maybe get my PhD and become a college professor. So, so I worked for about five years. I worked, um, I worked in restaurants. I worked in bookstores. Uh, I worked as a telemarketer briefly. And in all that time I was trying to write, uh, I was writing. I was successfully writing. It wasn't any good, but I was writing a lot um, before I went back to graduate school. So that, those were my riveting 20s were working those kinds of jobs while I was was actually learning the discipline to write. Right, right, which, which you know, it takes takes time. I mean, it takes time and practice. You can't just yeah. you can't just wake up and, and, and become a writer. I see this in um, – in the stand-up world, so in addition to to, to writing books myself, I I'm, I do stand-up comedy, and it's amazing just to see how many people try and do it, um, thinking that they're going to be great right out the bat, you know, and they get all mad yeah. when they get off a of stage, like oh man that stunk, and I'm like, dude, you're this is an open mic, like you you can't bomb. All you can do is get better, and you know, people, it's funny they they set these people set the the bar from themselves, I think sometimes so high. They think that, okay, just because somebody doesn't like something or the first time out of the gate, you know, the, the first book I ever wrote will never see the light of day. Right, um, right. But it, it is one of those things where the more you do it, the better you get at it, the more, you know, it's like muscle. It's almost like muscle memory and going to the gym, you know, the, the yes. more you, you push weight, the, the stronger you're going to be, the more you write, the better you are. You know, you're absolutely right. It is something that you are training yourself to do to the point that your brain, you get your brain to the point where if you don't write on a certain day, your brain says this, this is unusual that you're not writing. Right. Uh, and so, so it is in that way, like working out or training, um, or lifting weights. If I lifted weights, I imagine that's what it would be like. Right. Or if I ran, I imagine that's what it would be like. Um, but yeah, and I think part of it is that we do live, um, we live in a world that offers instant gratification for so many things that the idea that you would, and there's so much pressure, I think, on young people to get out of college and have a job right away and to have everything figured out right away. And if you're doing something creatively, whether it's stand up or writing or music or something, it can take years to get somewhere. I mean, how many writers don't publish their first book till they're 40 or 45 or 50 or whatever, because it just takes that long. I mean, it takes 
a year to write a book at least. So anyway, you're absolutely right. People have to be patient. They have to take the long view on that kind of thing. So when was your first taste of success? You know, when, when did it click for you that you, you could move from this desire to want to write to actually, you know, getting, getting published for the first time and kind of, and, and, you know, being persistent and chipping away um, at the dream. When, when did the first taste of success happen? I mean, you know, I, the first things were getting just encouraging rejection letters in my 20s when I would send a story somewhere and someone would write back and say, we really like this. You know, we didn't, you didn't quite make the cut, but please try again. And then it felt like, okay, there's someone on the other end who's paying attention, right? Because otherwise, writing is very lonely because you're just doing it. It's not like, say, being in a band or making a movie or whatever or playing a sport where you might have other people with you. Writing is just like you in a room alone. Um, So to hear a response on the other end was encouraging. Um, I didn't publish my first story. I mean, I went to grad school and grad in my late 20s and graduate school was encouraging because I had some professors who said, yeah, you're doing well, you've got talent, keep doing this, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't publish my first story until I was probably in my early 30s and I was in my PhD program. And so so it was a long, slow road in that way. And that's that's what I tell my students is there's all this time where it's just you alone and you go home at Thanksgiving and your Aunt Betty says to you, so what are you going to do with your life? And you say, well, I'm a writer. And then what's the next question? Well, have you published anything? You know, what, what, you know, and it's like, well, no. Well, so are you really a writer if you haven't published anything, if no one is reading it, uh, if you're just writing for yourself? I mean, I think you are. You may not be an author, but you're a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's the hard part about being a writer is that long stretch between saying you want to do it and then when it actually happens. Right. And when, when did it happen for you for the, for, for the first time and, and, and like paint a picture of what that moment was like when, when you finally found out that a story you had written is going to be published somewhere? Well, I had written this very long story um, when I was in grad school. It was a zombie story um, that I, that had very clever social commentary. I thought, I didn't know if anyone else was going to get it, but I did. And I sent it to a a magazine, a small journal that no longer exists called the edge tales of suspense. This was back in the old days before places took many submissions online or through the internet. I mean, you just had to mail them a a copy of the thing with a self-addressed stamped envelope. And I can remember, Coming home, we lived in an apartment when we were in graduate school and opening the mailbox, and there was this thick response from this magazine. You know, ordinarily when they send you a rejection letter, it would just be like one little slip, like, you know, just like we could barely, you know, just like, sorry. And it was just like, it was like a fortune cookie slip. (laughs) That's all you get. But this was thick. And I thought, but not the whole story, but it was thick. And I thought, well, they're sending me something thick that must mean there might be a contract in there, right? And I opened it, and the editor of that magazine, who I still am friends with on Facebook and talk to occasionally, a guy named Greg Gafune, 
not only did he accept the story, but he wrote a, a nice acceptance note where he explained why he was taking the story and he, he got the story. So not only was it that I was being published, but it was that someone got it, right? He yeah. saw the story the same way I saw it. And, and so I, it, that was just like, okay, there's someone out in the world. There's a professional person out in the world who gets what I'm doing. It may only be one person, but that meant a lot. So that was just like a huge moment to have that happen. Yeah, it's like double validation. You you kind of got right. what you wanted in the sense of somebody saying, hey, we're going to publish this. But then, hey, somebody actually got what my core ideas were, which is uh, – Right. Yeah. Which is yeah. Uh, two wins. So when, when when does an agent come into play for you, David? When, um, when does that happen? Well, that was later. So I – so that story that got published um, by Greg Gaffune, um, so fast forward maybe five years or so, four or five years, um, and I had my first teaching job, and I published a few stories after that. But I got back in touch with Greg, and he was now working as an editor at a small publisher, Delirium Books. And he, we got in touch. We, we would just occasionally talk via email or whatever. And he, we got in touch one day and he said, you know, I'm now looking for new authors at this small press. I'm working for delirium books. He said, have you ever thought of turning that story, which was already like 12,000 words into a novel? And of course I hadn't thought of it, but I said, yes, I've been thinking about that all the time. So I turned that story into a novel, a not a very long novel, about 55,000 words, and it got accepted at this small publisher, Delirium Books. And that was just mind-blowing that a novel was going to be published. And I didn't need an agent for that. Um, so that book got published at the small publisher. When I needed blurbs for that book, I got in touch with a writer, a guy named Ed Gorman, who is no longer with us, but who was a great underappreciated mystery writer, Western writer, horror writer. I had been reading his blog. I'd probably bugged him via email for advice from time to time. And so when I needed blurbs for this book, I, I, in a very ballsy manner, just wrote to Ed and said, would you give me a blurb for this book? And he did. And he gave me a little blurb for the book. And then about a year after that, Ed wrote to me one day and said, I was talking to an editor at St. Martin's who was looking for young talent. I was not young at the time, but, you know, younger than I am now, looking for new writers. And Ed put me in touch with this guy. And that's when I wrote Cemetery Girl. I wrote Cemetery Girl for this editor at St. Martin's, and he wanted to publish the book. And I did not have an agent. So I was on the I was on the phone one day with this editor at St. Martin's who was throwing out dollar figures at me. And I was thinking, man, am I in over my head now? Right. Like I could just see me signing, saying, like, I'll do it. And they're paying me like 50 cents or something like that. So so when I had the editor interested, then I was able to go to some agents I had had contact before and say, I've got an editor on the line. Would you represent me? And that's how I got my agent, who is still my agent. And then that book, the, the St. Martin's guy couldn't make it happen, but it ended up getting bought by my current editor at Berkeley. So yeah. that's that's when Cemetery Girl came out with uh, 
uh, Berkeley, which is part of Penguin Random House. Yeah. So that's the long. So it's kind of a weird backward story. Normally, people get the agent first, then the editor. I had the editor interested first, and then I got the agent. You know, it's interesting. I mean, it is kind of like putting the cart before the horse. But you're you're probably the fifth or sixth author I've spoken with who that's the story. They get a, a publisher interested, um, and then you know, all of a sudden, finding an agent is uh, a lot easier than when you're just querying. Hey, I've got this, you know, new right. new book coming in that I'd like to, you know, have see the light of day and. Um, it's a, it's a different conversation to have, I guess, when, when you're going in with something in, in hand. Um, I mean, you've, you've, I mean, you've already done some of the work for them that yeah. you have the editor interested. And I mean, agents are so inundated with queries that something that makes you stand out like that, like, oh, I've talked to an editor, I've had contact with an editor is the thing that, that might make you stand out. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. So when um, when did the idea for layover come into you? And actually, you know, as you you know discussed that, just t- talk to me a little bit about your writing process and how you how you go from getting an idea to, to getting it down. What's what's the process that you follow? Well, there's always an initial spark of some kind. And it's and they have come for all the books from either something I see on the news, a newspaper article, something I observe something that I've stolen things from things that have happened to friends or to family members. I try not to tell them and I just hope they don't read the book. Um, But so it's almost anything uh, because I'm, I'm writing a book a year. So you've got to, you've got to always be on the lookout for a new idea. So layover happened in that way that a couple of years ago uh, or more, I was in the Nashville airport. I live uh, an hour from Nashville. So that's the airport that you have to fly in and out of if you want to go anywhere. Um, and so I was in the Nashville airport uh, on a layover, waiting for a flight, whatever. And I was at one of those anonymous uh, bars that line the concourses of the airport. And um there was a couple across the way from me and a man and a woman, and they were having this really intense conversation. Like they were, they were, you know, their faces were close together and they seemed to really be sharing deep intimacies. And when I looked at them, I just thought, well, that they're a couple, right? I mean, they, they've been together a while or they're, they're deeply in love or whatever, because that's what they look like. And then all of a sudden the woman got up, um, she kissed the man very passionately and took her bags and left. And I heard the man say to the bartender, that was the strangest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. I just met that woman here in the airport and we agreed to have a drink and we connected. And then just out of the blue, she got up and left and I'm never going to see her again. And so I thought to myself, there's got to be a story there. Uh, what is it about these two people meeting in this airport? Could there be something deeper and darker behind this woman's abrupt departure from this man who she was having this connection with? Um, so that's the initial spark is that thing that I observe. Then it sits in my mind for a while, somewhere way in the back of my mind, right? Um, and I clearly remember, so then, you know, like once a year, I ha- it comes the time of year when I have to come up with the idea for the next book. And so I can clearly remember I woke up one morning and that memory had popped back into the front of my brain. And I said, 
it just looked clear as anything. It was just like, that's the next book. That's the idea. That's what I'm going to write about. So it starts from that initial setup of these two people meeting in an airport. From there, I make a detailed outline of the story, um, which is just a roadmap so that I know I know what the ending is and I know what all the twists and turns are going to be and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I really consider that outline, that detailed outline to be like a first draft um, because a lot of questions get figured out and sorted out in that outline. Who are the characters? What are they going to do? How is this going to end? And then when that is really just rock solid, then I feel comfortable moving on to writing the first draft of the book and getting that first draft down. Um, and then, you know, then as people read it and I get comments and I revise and on and on. Um, so that's usually how the whole process goes. Do you find that after you write that, that initial outline that when you start actually the, the writing process, um, do you find that you're changing, you're diverting from that, that I'll call it a flight plan just to, to keep it the theme of the, the latest Good metaphor. Book, but, um, do you, do you find that you divert from that at all? Yeah, I do. I mean, the, the, the outline is not set in stone because I think that as I'm writing something and, um, I think I know what's going to happen and then some, some better idea pops into my head. Um, I th- and I'm surprised by that idea. If I'm surprised by the idea as I'm writing the book, then I think, okay, the reader is probably going to be surprised by this idea. So, I mean, it certainly happened. I know it happened a few books ago um, uh, since she went away. My book, I had the outline. I thought I knew who the killer was. I thought I knew what had happened until, you know, 80% through writing the book, I realized, oh, it would be better if this person were the killer. And it, and it all just came clear. And I had no idea that that was going to happen. So my hope is that when the reader reads a book, those surprises, they are, they think to themselves, I had no idea that was going to yeah. happen because it's, it's, it's coming organically to me. So hopefully it seems organic to them that something happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Um, just, just talking about your process, I've, I've got some similarities, but you know, I, I'm, I'm, um, I, my day job is I run focus groups all over the country um, so I'm constantly meeting, you know, new people, um, you know, every week. And as part of that, I travel a lot. And a lot of the observations I make, I mean, I make a ton of observations while I travel and I spend a lot of time in airports and, and actually interestingly in hotel bars, that's where you really do see like a cross, mm. like a cross section of, you know, humanity coming through is in the hotel bar. But I, I find myself kind of sitting in the corner, usually alone, um, just wondering like what everybody's story is at the bar. And I remember uh, clearly I was, I was in a hotel. I think think it was Dallas maybe. And there was a woman who was constantly meeting men at the bar and, you know, she would leave with them for about 20 minutes and then come back and then the men would disappear. And then it was like rinse and repeat. And I'm like, Oh my God, I I think this woman could be a prostitute, you know, like it's just it's like hanging, but right there in front of you. But of course I, it could have been something a heck of a lot more innocent than that. But that's where my mind she could have been it. selling Girl yeah. Scout cookies. She, she, she could have been selling something other than uh, her body. But um, to me, that's yeah. where like my, of course that, that might tell you where my bias is because I'm 
perverted. I don't know. But uh, it's because you grew up Catholic. That's the first thing you think of. Right? And I, I was going to go up to her and call her a sinner and um, try and sprinkle holy water on her. But I didn't have any on me. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, when did, when does this one come out? This is coming out soon, right? Layover. July 2nd. It okay. comes out on Tuesday. All right. So, so yes, July 2nd. So you're, I imagine you're probably doing uh, a lot of conversations like these and, and a fair amount of uh, press for it. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, lots of interviews, lots of guest blog posts, uh, radio, some TV, uh, then a book tour, uh, so some various places. So, uh, yeah, I'll be hopping for the next few weeks as this, as this all unfolds, right? I'll be spending a lot of time in airports and hotels, so, so I'll be observing people, too. Ed, you might, you might get your next story out of it. You never know. Let's hope so. Um, how do you like doing the, the book tours? Um, is that something you look forward to or is that, uh, something you dread? I, you know, some of us are introverted, some of us are extroverted. So I'm just curious as to what you think of those. Well, I, I, I'm not, I'm introverted. I, I, you know, I'm quiet and, and calm in my daily life. Um, but I do like the book tour because like I was saying earlier, writing is so weird and lonely you know, you're so alone all the time um, and you have no idea if anyone is on the other end of the line, right? It's not like if you're an actor in a play or you're in a band and you get to go out and, you know, people applaud for you every night. That just doesn't happen. Um, so, so the chance to go on the book tour is the chance to actually stand in front of human beings and talk and answer questions and find out what what people are thinking about your book or whatever. Um, so, so I do enjoy that part of it. I mean, it's tiring, you know, you are in airports and all that stuff and eating poorly. Um, but you know, that's, that's just the, the cost of doing business. The actual, like sitting, sitting there and meeting readers and hearing what they think is very gratifying. It really is. Yeah. I mean, you're right. There is that thing. Like, and I notice it between, um, you know, when I when I go on stage just to tell a few jokes, uh, you know that you're doing well. There's like a very objective sign that you're doing well, and that is that people are laughing. You know, right. and so that's then that almost becomes like a drug, somewhat that you're always trying to chase is to is to make people laugh um, and to get that immediate feedback. Versus, you know, if I throw a blog post up there or if a book comes out. You don't know. I mean, unless you're you're kind of going to Amazon or Goodreads and and trying to see who's reviewing you, um, which may or may not be a positive thing to do. But um, you know, you, you oftentimes yeah. don't know until you meet people, like you say, doing doing book tours and doing signings and stuff like that. I mean, you do get, you know, people will send emails, people will say things on social media, but then, like you said, there's always the danger of, um, you go on, you look at Amazon and you could have, you know, 100 five-star reviews and one one-star review and you walk away from it saying, I can't believe I got that one-star review, right? That's what you remember. Um, and it might be a one-star review because, you know, Amazon mailed the package a day late or whatever, and it has nothing to do with you. Um, so, so yeah, those things, I, I try not to dwell too much on, on those kinds of reviews because that's just, the internet is just a strange place as we all know. So it's good not to, it's good not to have your self-esteem too tied to that stuff. Right. Right. Well, I mean, the, the book looks really exciting. I mean, certainly something that I could relate to not, uh, you know, 
passionately kissing random women I just meet in airports. Uh, my wife wouldn't like that too much, but uh, just the, the whole setting and, and, and the imagination behind it all. So I'm excited to read it. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I am really excited about this one just because I think it has this really unique concept of these people meeting in this airport. And then it has this – a lot of my books have been set in a smaller town, and they tend to be all in that town – Whereas in this story, you have characters who are moving around and going from city to city and airport to airport and stuff like that. So it just has a different kind of movement to it, which was which was fun to try and fun to write. Right. And that's, that's got to be great for you just to, to kind of change it up. For, for I mean, you, you kind of write in the same genre, but just to change up and having multiple settings and um, and all that must uh, must must give you some new energy. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was just it was just a slight. I mean, it has the same elements uh, that the other books have, where it has just like an ordinary guy who gets in over his head and he's caught up in something bigger, and there's a missing persons case and and that stuff. But just some of the setting was different. Um, the stuff writing about airports and airplanes and hotels was all unique. Um, and I think anybody who's traveled at all will understand that feeling, like you were saying, of being in the anonymous hotel bar, airport bar, the plane, you know, where you're just not seeing the world, uh, you know, you're suspended either in the air or in an airport or whatever. And it all just feels very weird to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm excited. I'm, I'm taking it with me uh, on my summer vacation. We're hitting Cape Cod next week and uh, it'll be the book that I read in the hammock in the backyard uh, uh, of, of our rental on Harding's Beach Road. So I'm, I'm definitely excellent. looking forward okay. to it. So, uh, David, listen, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Um, uh, really appreciate the conversation and um, hope you have a, a great rest of your day. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, enjoy your vacation. I hope the book helps the vacation and doesn't ruin the vacation in any way. But... There, I, I don't see that happening. I don't okay. see that happening. But, uh, Good. no, it looks, uh, it looks like a great read. And uh, certainly situations that I can, uh, again, uh, relate to and maybe empathize with uh, minus the missing persons and uh, right, potential right. infidelity in the airport. Right. Right. Okay. Thanks a lot. Very good. Well, there you have it. My interview, my conversation with a master of the thriller, David Bell. You can learn more about David and all of the books he's written at davidbellnovels.com. Just as it sounds, davidbellnovels.com. Be on the lookout for layover in uh, in bookstores and online. Uh, I, I can tell it's going to be a great read. I've uh, gotten a little bit of a sneak peek of it, and I can't wait to devour it on my vacation next week in Cape Cod. Um, and if you want to learn more about me, you can visit my brand new website. I have a new website, people. It is called MikeCarlin.com. Very simple. MikeCarlin.com. That's Carlin with an O, not an I. Usually trips people up. But yes, MikeCarlin.com has all the information you need on uh, my novels, on my comedy, and um, on this podcast, Uncorking a Story. You can go to the podcast tab, listen to past episodes, and very importantly, share them with a friend. Always appreciate it when people share this show with a friend because that helps us grow. We grow every time we do one of these things and uh, always, always appreciate that. So for all the hardworking and diligent people, at Uncorking a Story. This is Mike Carlin saying thank you, and until next time.